All right, guys, feel free to take a seat. Welcome, welcome. Um, hey, gang. This is our last Sunday uh, in a series that we're calling Nothing's Off the Table. Uh, and pretty much what we've done throughout this was a short little summer series. Um, we're going to do a one-off next week, and then we're actually meeting with the strategy team this week to figure out where we want to go in the fall and what we want to talk about. Um, it's always a good time of, like, shaping kind of what our conversation is here in the church. Um, but over this last series, what we've been doing uh, is we've been examining Jesus' conversations around the table, specifically because the reason is when you, when you read the Gospels, Jesus seems to be eating a whole lot and drinking a whole lot and just being with people around a table a whole lot. And if you see things in Scripture a bunch, the best thing you can possibly do is kind of start asking questions. Like, why is that in there so often? Like, why does the writer feel that they need to mention this detail, or that he's at dinner, or that he's at a table? Uh, and when you kind of look closer, you realize that the table had this huge, rich, uh, tradition in the Jewish faith and in, in those ancient times. And basically when you were sitting at a table, it was an overwhelming place of safety, significance, and it actually defined who you were. This is really weird, but it's like your lunch table in high school. Who you sat with kind of defined who you were. And more than that, in the ancient tradition, who you sat at table with actually was a picture of who you belonged to. So think about that. That's even more than just like who I'm with. It's who I belong to, who I am claimed by. Right? When you're at the table, and we've mentioned this this entire series, but when you're at the table, you literally were safe because the host, whoever was hosting, was duty-bound to protect you and serve you to the best of their ability. If you walked in as a guest in someone's home, it wouldn't be like, oh, okay, well, we've got some snacks, and then we'll, we'll throw those out there, and then we've got these stale chips that have been in the fridge for like two weeks. You don't put chips in the fridge. Anyway, uh, we have all this stuff. It would be like, no, 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 like, like we're going to cook this awesome meal, bring out the best bottle of wine. Like, we're going to serve this person like they are our, our valued family and guest. That was the whole point of the table. And I think a lot of times in church, we kind of have replaced the idea of a table and the space where Christ literally says as he breaks the bread and, and shows him the wine, He's at a table and he says, hey, when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. And then what's really funny, right after that, before they go to the garden and everything goes down, it says they sang a hymn and then they went. So right in that moment, Jesus is kind of modeling for these early Jesus followers what his community is going to look like, what quote unquote church or ecclesia, this gathering is going to look like. And when he does that, he does that around a table. And I'm afraid that in modern Christianity, that's something we've lost and we've lost it in a big way. Because uh, now the table has been replaced with what church you go to, what denomination you go to, what beliefs you subscribe to, where you can be welcome and where you cannot. But the whole idea of the table is that when you entered there, you were family, that you were protected, that you were valued. And so Jesus would say some pretty outlandish stuff to both his followers and the people who were kind of rubbing against him, these Pharisee people. And he would say these ridiculous statements at the table that would push them way farther than they thought they could go. But there was a, there was a, like a maturity and a mutuality to that conversation because they understood that here at the table, this is a place where we can have these conversations, right? In Western culture, how many times as a kid, well, I mean, if you were me and you talked a lot, would you hear like, that's not appropriate at the dinner table? Right? We have a mantra, and there's a whole list of things that you just simply do not bring up. And that's very good. Like, those are there for a reason, because like, you know, if you're Thanksgiving and you go on your political tirade, you're not going to be everyone's favorite person. But we have to start loosening up those, those tightly wound screws on what we can talk about and what we can't talk about, because what's happening now, and we've seen it, 
is that we're beginning to live in vacuums. We're beginning to live in places where we go to the spaces that we agree with and the people agree with us, and so we talk freely there, but as soon as we're in a different space, we, we actually avoid those spaces altogether because those people, oh, they don't, they don't dress like me, they don't look like me, they don't agree with my same politics, they don't agree with my faith. Those people, they become other. But the table is just, there's guest, you're my guest, you're my family, we're gonna talk, you're protected, you feel safe, I'm going to serve you. The table was this radical idea of fellowship. And it was designed to take this stranger, because guests in the ancient, like, in ancient Israel, they would, they would wander the land, and you were really, really dependent. If you're a shepherd, you'd have to go from like spot to spot, herding your sheep, taking them to new pastures so they could eat, getting them the fresh water, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, if you weren't sleeping outside, it was harsh and the heat was awful. If you've ever been to that area in the world, you'd understand that's not a fun place to be outside all day. So you were really reliant upon the people that you would come upon, the houses that you would come upon, the tribes that you would come upon to let you in and literally give you the sustenance that it would take to survive. That's how important this was. And so these laws, these rules, were set up for this desert hospitality thing in which you would enter the home, they would wash your feet, they would hand you bread, they would put maybe a cloak over you like, so that you would know you're completely welcomed in this space. And all of those things were designed not just for casual how's the weather conversation, but they were designed to take someone from a complete stranger to family. Complete stranger, not just a friend right here, but all the way over to family. And we can do our best with like welcome tables and greeters and all that kind of stuff, but that doesn't serve the same purpose as the table does. And so my hope and my prayer with this series is to pull us from a part of just being sort of like a church where we just gather on Sunday to understanding that when we gather at this place and we approach the table every single week, we're approaching it with that kind of severity, that kind of joy, that kind of awe. When we come to the table, we're literally saying to all these people around me, this is my, this is my people. I'm going to respect you, and I'm going to respect your views, and I'm going to listen to you, and we can have conversations that in normal sort of scenarios we can't always have. So uh, the other part of this was that I asked you guys to give me questions because I wanted you to kind of drive the train here, uh, and I wanted to see what we, we wanted to talk about. So these are questions that would normally be off the table in any other kind of like church context. We can handle some really, really heavy stuff. We handled, like, early death. We handled, I mean, just some heavy stuff that most, most spaces, it would be a, a stretch for them to swing that hard, but we decided we'd take it on full on. Uh, and this last one, we're going to talk about the church, because there were several questions um, that all were related around the same theme, which is basically this. Statistically, if you read the news, if you're, if you're kind of with it and you're, you're, you're following church uh, in present day, 2018, uh, there's the, all of this talk uh, that the church is dying. And it's not just talk, it's a very real thing. Uh, church is actually dissipating at a huge, huge rate. In fact, in the last 10 years, uh, since the 90s actually, so a little bit longer, uh, we've seen a, a bump from 6% of people who are not religiously affiliated who don't tend to worship a service to 22% overall in the American population. Even more than that, millennials... That's 35% say they're not religiously affiliated and will never attend a church service. That's just in 10 years. That bump has happened. So this is not like an issue or something that can be really fixed. This is a reality. It's a reality. And so we as churches, and especially as new churches, we have to figure out fresh ways to, to be church. Not to present the gospel and all of that. That's, that's going to remain. But we have to be new and fresh in the way that we gather together in community, and we have to be flexible and we have to be honest. 
Because I think all too often people avoid situations like this because they come in thinking they have to have it all together or they have to know the right lingo or they have to know when to sit and stand, all that kind of stuff. We have to be flexible with where we're going. So today we're going to look at several different stories in the Bible all about how God kind of solves this problem of loss, division, and brings people back together because that's his ultimate plan for the whole world is kind of to redeem things and make all things new. Um, and to do that, we're going to talk about a story where I uh, played with a fire extinguisher, and uh, we're going to talk about the time my mentor said I should quit, and we'll talk about um, a fun Zen word called moo. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we will we'll jump in. Lord God, uh, thank you. Thank you for this space, for this community. Um, thank you for what you're doing in our city, uh, in, our, in our nation, in our world. Um, God, I really pray as, as we talk about something that is so near and dear to my heart, um, I care about so much, and that I guarantee the people in this room, because they are here, care about so deeply, uh, that we would be willing to have an open conversation, a frank conversation about what this space looks like, what Capital C Church looks like. And Lord, uh, more than anything, I just pray uh, there's a real chance to be very cynical, uh, to be very kind of like naysaying. Um, as we are a new community, but I pray that uh, we could do this in love and we could recognize that uh, there's room for every sort of community and brushstroke on this giant canvas and painting you call the kingdom. So uh, we do this lovingly and, and we know that you're here and that you showed up and that you're guiding us. Amen. Um, so on October 7th, uh, we're going to be celebrating our two years in sort of this iteration of Resonate. Uh, and so to give you an example, um, those stats that I said were like churches are statistically kind of falling away. Uh, that's very true, but there's another interesting statistic, which is that there are more new churches in the United States today than there have ever been. And in fact, each year, the stat keeps climbing and climbing and climbing as to how many new communities are being started. Because what we see are these big, giant buildings that are starting to kind of like close down or they're dying or they're even on, this is an uncomfortable word, but a lot of these churches are on hospice care, right? There's a lot going on to just keep them alive, keep them afloat. But what's happening with that, and it's just sort of the normal symbiotic rhythm of life, is that as these bigger institutions are sort of fading away, all of these little communities are popping up. And I think a lot of that is because you cannot stop good news. So there's no way that they're ever going to die out completely. What's going to happen is what we're seeing is that there are going to be all of these little communities that are going to start popping up to sort of offer up fresh new ways to do that. And we're a part of that grand tradition uh, here. But um, statistically speaking, we're kind of an anomaly. Um, every sort of like church planning thing that I went to, and I had to go to like all of these boot camps and seminary, they put you through all this stuff, uh, they gave me a list of rules that you have to follow. Uh, and they're markers. So you have to have this many people by this many months. This will be a little inside baseball, but I promise this is going to come around. Um, you have to have this many people, this much money in the bank, all of this. I'm here to tell you today, two years into this, we have yet none of those markers. <laughs> so what's happening is that we're alive and well and thriving in a very different and interesting way. Um, so two years ago as we revamped uh, and we thought about this, I got a call uh, from my mentor and actually just like my hero. This guy is a church planting wizard. And planting is a very Christianese word. Um, it just basically means like church startup. So, but they call it a plant. Uh, because it's supposed to be a little seed and it grows. It's very cute. But my hero, uh, his name is Nick, and, uh, and I was lucky enough, he invited me to be on his cohort, which is this kind of intensive program over the summer, uh, to just go through what church looks like, to visit all these different churches. And, and we go away for a week, and we kind of study uh, just like, like what it means to be on mission, what it means to start missional communities, all this kind of cool stuff. 
Um, and I'm with him for this week, and, and we really bonded uh, over a love of beer. So we would go out, and we would have like a craft beer at night, and we would talk, and we would talk church, and we would talk theology. And, and we got to know each other really well over that week. And then when we got back, I got a phone call from Nick, and we'd been kind of texting back and forth. And I thought, oh, cool, my buddy Nick, my hero, this guy who really likes me now. This is going to be a fun conversation. I get on the phone, and he's like, hey, uh, you got a minute? And I was like, sure. Thinking, like, still cool. Everything's fine. Uh, and he's like, hey, I'm up at my cabin. Uh, and I'm walking down the lake, and I just I felt like I really needed to call you. And I went, okay. And he goes, hey, so, you know, just looking at all the number of stuff you gave me based on this new community you're trying to get started, uh, and based upon, like, sort of your age and everything, I, you know, I believe in you as a leader, Josh, but I think you need to shut this down immediately. It, it's not going to work. And I was just sort of dumbfounded on the other end of the line, like, oh, this isn't the phone call I expected to have. <laughs> right? Like, like uh-oh. Um, and I thought about that for a really long time. When someone that you really respect and really love speaks into you that way, he was just trying to care for me, but at the same time it felt like, oh, like maybe he's right. Because on paper, like, yeah, man, maybe he's right. But that was two years ago, and again, statistically speaking, most church plants or startups will fail in the first year. And if you make it to year two and you're financially sustainable, the odds that you will make it in general are far, far greater. And we're coming up on that. And the weird part that we're coming up on that is it's not a bragging story or anything like that. This is not what I'm doing. What it is, is that what we're seeing is that there's a shift and there's a change in the way that people are viewing church, attending church, and the way that churches are existing. I think it's so important to latch on to that change and understand that this is not something we need to be scared of, but it's something we need to embrace. Because for too long, we have been splitting off and dividing in all sorts of different uh, ways. Along with the fact that there's, it's bumped from 6% to 22%, and that 35% of millennials would say, I'm never attending church. Uh, 28% of overall people who said they would not, this is from a Gallup poll, 28% of all people who said that they would not attend a worship service cite two reasons for that, and they're both in the same category, which is a real bummer. But it's the sermons, <laughs> and it's the fact that they don't feel welcome. And both of those are in the same category. 28% feel like they're either not welcome or that they don't resonate with what's going on in the sermon. So what that means is the people with my job description are not doing a very good job. But also, what that means is that I really latch on to that 28% that are saying when I, I would, I might attend church service, but when I walk in, I feel like I am not welcome. And that is a huge, huge thing, guys. The fact that you could walk into the table and you could feel like I don't have a seat at this place or I'm not right for this and maybe I'm living a certain way or I think I'm living a certain way and people are going to judge me or whatever it might be. But the fact that 28% of these people are saying I would not enter a church building because I do not feel welcome can be changed. It's actually a very easy change if we stop picking apart and fighting about things that matter the least and we start looking at the stuff that matters the most, which is, one, the gospel, and two, you guys, people. People. If we zoom out and we view this as people and the gospel, we can stop messing with all of the tiny little things. Did you know that there are over 33,000 denominations in the Protestant tradition alone? 33,000 registered traditions worldwide right now. 33,000. And God's, Jesus' major prayer before he goes to the cross and he prays over all of his disciples and humanity, what does he say? It's a trick question. You don't have to know that. <laughs> he says, Lord, my prayer for them is that they might be one as we are one. 
that they might be one. And if you look at the way that we're living right now, and if you look at Christianity in general today, you're going to find out that, like, if there's 33,000 denominations, maybe we're not listening to that. And here's a weird flip for you. A lot of times we spend a lot of time pondering and thinking about why our prayers aren't answered, or I've been praying in this way and I felt nothing back from God. But look at this. This is one instance where God is literally praying for us and we're not answering his prayer. We're not acting as one. We're splitting up over the weirdest little minute details. Sometimes they're big. Let's take my, uh, my home tradition, uh, the SBC, the Southern Baptist. This is in no way going to be bitter at all. Um, Southern Baptist, uh, it turns out, there are Baptists and there are Southern Baptists. So the Baptists will call themselves the regular Baptists, and the Southern Baptists will call themselves the regular Baptists. So both of them are Baptists in the same tradition. There's a couple minor details in there that are different, but the major one, and the reason that they split way, way, way back, was over the issue of slavery. And I'm going to leave it to you to guess which one wanted to keep that tradition and which one wanted to leave. But they literally split in half because one side said, no, we can look at clearly in Scripture that this is a right thing and that we should own slaves. And then you have another tradition that says, "Uh uh-uh, no, I don't think you're reading that right. We're going to split off and, and... we're going to do our own thing. And the SBC is one of the largest growing traditions or denominations right now in the country. Uh, and that's, that's fine. But the issue is they didn't really apologize about that whole slavery thing until the 1990s. Whoops. Right? It was like 1993 they finally came out with a formal apology for doing that. So those are big ones, but there are all sorts of other little details that we, that we branch off from. Like, I don't like the music style here, so we're going to go over here and we're going to create our own community. I don't like the way that the pastor talks, so we're going to go over here and we're going to go create that community. Now, when Jesus is sitting at the table breaking the bread and handing them the wine, I don't think he's thinking about the quality of the music. I don't think he's thinking about the quality of the sermon. All he's saying is, hey, are you gathering in a space and are you remembering me? Are you gathering in a space and are you actively having a conversation about me in this safe environment. 33,000 different denominations does not look like unity. It does not look like one. And it's fine. We can have different families. We can have different opinions. That's awesome. But we have to stop fighting over the little details of the Misha, over these bizarre little rules that are separating us to the point that we won't unify and help. Can you imagine if 33,000 denominations, I look this up, the Staples Center can fit 21,000 people. That means that if you had one person from each one of those denominations, they would not be able to fit in the Staples Center, <laughs> right? But if you could get all of these people gathered together and unified over this one issue, which is to share the love of Jesus with all people, imagine the things that could get done in this world. Imagine the stuff. And the stuff that's holding us back is due to how we dunk people in water, little details like that, and I'm telling you, the, the saying is true, the devil is in the details, right? When we talk about, like, the devil and evil forces and Satan and the adversary and all of that kind of stuff, we have to stop looking at it like this little dude with a pitchfork and he's all dressed in red. The real issue here is that the adversary or those forces that keep us from acting on the gospel or on this idea of Jesus and the way that he lived in the kingdom The stuff that's actively stopping us from that are these small little minutiae details that don't need to be there in the first place. And I think the greatest win is that those other forces are just going, no, if we can keep them talking about this stuff, we're good. Just have them keep fighting about moving that picture of the late pastor in the 1960s and then move to the office instead of the real... Those kind of problems truly, truly do exist. 
if we can stop fighting over the little stuff and start focusing on the really big issues, I think we're going to do much, much better. And we're going to be much, much better off for it. Um, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. He says this, commenting uh, Bible, you are one body, one spirit, just, uh, just as God has also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, in all. And the most important statement there is that there's not just one God, that's a great statement, but the other statement is that you are one, just the same as that God is one. Then in groups like this, we are one. And what's super cool about small new communities like this is we're not like a giant cruise ship where we're going to have to have a whole board committee if we want to treat just a little bit like off course. We're like a little tiny pirate ship that we can say like, oh, we want to go over here, Shoop! and no, no committees, right? When the, uh, when the flood hit in Houston uh, and the Astrodome can take the people and all, all that stuff was happening, uh, we literally had a moment where we said like, hey, why don't we just go ahead and give 100% of our offering to that flood effort? Like 100%, the stuff that was already scheduled to come in, everything, just 100%. And I'm telling you right now, our budget is not that great. So this was a big move for us. We just said, no, we, we can do this because we can navigate this ship quickly. We can say, hey, we need help over here. Let's do it. When the Thomas fire hit, we were able to give a portion of our offering to that. When we started Resonate, this is going to have to do with what Bobby is here. This is something we haven't talked about in a really long time. When we started in the very beginning, we not only started this community, but we started a small community in Ecuador and helped them fund a church that got started at the same time there. So this stuff, being able to zip, zip very, very quickly gets us out of the minutia and the muck and all of the stuff that like will weigh things down and it says, no, we're able to act upon what's happening rather than just talk about what's happening. There's a huge moment right now where people are kind of just frustrated with the idea that we say, like, my thoughts and prayers are with you, right? How often do you hear that? That's wonderful. I, we should always be praying. We should always be thinking for these people. But also, those prayers should lead us into action. And in communities like this, we can actually do that. And that's such a fun thing to be able to grab onto, to be able to go. I used to uh, do a chapel uh, at a uh, high school here in town. It's connected to this uh, bigger, older church. And, uh, and I would get in so much trouble. Uh, well, we'll just call her, she's this, this sweet uh, lady, but uh, she, really, she really had it out for me. So what, what she would do is I would move like a cable from the school um, corner. They had their own closet and the, the the church had their own closet, and I would put it back in the church closet, uh, or I would, God forbid, accidentally grab one of their music stands, and I would take it, and I would, I would begin to lead worship there. And then afterwards, I would get a note on the uh, church stationery that would, uh, like, inform me of my wrongdoing, and then that was also copied to the pastor, and sometimes the pastor would get involved. So I'm here to tell you this. If we ever become the type of church that is dealing with issues of where cables go or what music stands are moved, I'm out. <laughs> but other than that... Those are the little things that get in the way. People seem to have all sorts of time for these little details, but what's going on with the bigger stuff? What's going on in the world? When I was 12 years old, uh, my dad was a pastor at a local church in town, and we had this beautiful old Catholic building that we met in. Uh, we had it renovated, and then uh, the, the priest uh, still lived store, the next door in the rectory. And then uh, as well in this building, there was a school for troubled children um, that was also attached to that. So you have uh, like a, a Protestant church, um, some priests, and then also a school for troubled children, all in like the vicinity of like a square block. Uh, and so a buddy of mine, we're going to go play guitar 
uh, in the church because that was just a fun thing we could do. We could like go into the building and turn up real loud, and, uh, and it was a blast. So we're going to go play guitars. Uh, but with it being like this old Catholic church, there were all sorts of these little like nooks and crannies and like things to be explored. So after we got bored playing guitar, we naturally just went exploring for whatever we could find in like the, the darkest little corners of this church. Uh, and there was one room that I referred to as the scary room because uh, it had no light, but it just had these like kind of like, like breaks in the floorboards and stuff where you could see the light coming through. Uh, but they had all of this awesome old like sound equipment in there. And so we're kind of like rummaging through all the old sound equipment like, oh, look at this. We found this. Oh, look at this. And then all of a sudden we turn to our right, and to our right, there is no lie, like 20 fire extinguishers. 20. Just all in a row there. And it quickly shifted from me going like, oh, we should like rummage through this old sound equipment to, have you ever shot off a fire extinguisher? <laughs> and the friend probably said no. And I said, do you want to shoot off a fire extinguisher? And he was like, absolutely. So we go and we pick up some of these fire extinguishers. These are, uh, what do you call them, expired, completely expired. Maybe it's like 20 years old, right? So we take them. Uh, and we go outside, because we're not going to do this inside. We're responsible young men. So we go outside, and we start spraying one of the fire extinguishers. And I kid you not, we get like one like pfft off, and it was glorious. And then we hear from the rectory, we hear a very distinct sound of a priest going, Hey, what are you boys doing over there? <laughs> and we go, Whew. And so we quickly scatter, as, as you do. And so we, we scattered, and uh, we left the fire extinguisher there, just fearing uh, for the, the smoting of God to come down upon us. Uh, so we're hanging out, we go back, we're scared to death, we're not going to touch the fire extinguisher again. Then all of a sudden, a police car rolls up uh, to the front of the church, and the police officer gets out, and, uh, and he says, hey, are you the two boys that were shooting off the fire extinguishers? And in my classic, just Christian guilt, I break down, I'm like, yes, we did it, I'm sorry! So then they put us on the curb, and they say, wait here. Uh, and then it just so happened that the principal of the school for troubled children was around, and they thought that maybe we were one of those kids. So the principal comes out, and the principal goes, uh, I don't know, I'm going to have to look up, I don't know if these kids are in our school, which I was like, your school is like 30 people, that's not great. But anyway, so we're sitting there, uh, and we've got a principal, and we've got a policeman that have showed up, uh, and then naturally they call my dad, uh, so a pastor rolls in. So, so far, if you're tracking this, we've got a, a pastor, a priest, and a policeman, uh, and a principal. Um, and then, what else? oh, another policeman comes, because of course they need backup for these two small children. So you've got this plethora of people. In fact, if there was like a fireman and the mayor, you could have held like a town meeting. It was that many people of authority. Uh, and we're just, we're scared to death. Like, what are they going to do? And in my mind, my 12-year-old mind, I'm going like, I'm going to jail. Like, this is it. I'm like, sweep me up. Uh, and then the police officer goes and he finds the fire extinguisher. And he says, you know, this is vandalism and it's illegal to shoot off a uh, fire extinguisher. People need these. And we're like, I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he looks at the fire extinguisher and goes, oh, wait, this is expired. Oh, these kids are free to go. And, and then you just saw this look on all of these authority figures that were so ready for that smoting about to happen, just go like, wait, what? Like, are you serious? Like, they're just going to go? And he's like, oh, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with this. Like, they just shot off an expired fire extinguisher. There's nothing we can do. We can't press charges or anything like that. Uh, and all of them just kind of looked dazed at each other like, wait, that's not the way this is supposed to work out. So the story is not that I proved an entire gaggle of authority members wrong in this. The, the moral of the story is you have this entire group that almost represents every facet of authority, both in religion and in the real world, and you have them all coming and having time to come to two 12-year-olds shooting off a single fire extinguisher. My main question is, why did they not have something better to do? <laughs> why was it? that they were able to drop everything and come investigate this. 
and I don't bring this up again to, to prove the authority wrong, what I think the issue there is, is that we've started to look at authority in such a boring way. Authority is this God-ordained, awesome thing. And authority should be this reverent thing because really what authority leads us to is issues of justice, big stuff that's going on. But we've, we've sort of dumbed it down so far that authority becomes about little rules, little laws, follow this, follow that, ticket for that, all of this kind of stuff that gets in the way. And we're bogged down at the point that really a position of authority doesn't look all that appealing right now. It doesn't really look like a fun job. It doesn't look like a fulfilling job. It kind of just looks like something where you're doling out punishment. When really authority should be this awesome way of getting people back on track. Getting the whole mission, everything, back on track. It's in these little details and these little things that keep getting in the way. And I think especially as we come to issues of the church and church authority, as as far as like outsiders see us and they look in and they see us all fighting each other over these little minute details, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, that seems completely unappealing. These people can't agree on anything. Right? But what if they saw us gang together fighting for the stuff that matters the most? Then all of a sudden, someone who's never been involved in the Christian faith, someone who's never set foot through the doors of the church might go like, hey, wow, look at how much stuff is being done. Look at how much good is being done. But if we keep fighting each other, that's never going to look like an appealing thing. There's this awesome word uh, in the Zen Buddhist tradition, and it's called mu. Can everyone say mu like a cow? Mu? Good. Uh, mu is this awesome word that comes from uh, this, this story of a Zen master. And basically, the student asks the Zen master this simple question. Uh, and, and that's the job of a student, right? And so especially in this tradition and in the ancient Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition, questions are welcome. You should be asking tons of them. So this, this student comes up. I think he's got a real zinger of a question, and he asks the Buddha, um, or not the Buddha, I'm sorry, the Zen teacher. He asks, teacher, does the dog have a Buddha nature? Now, if you're thinking, what the heck is that question? So was the teacher. And he looked back at the student, and he answered this. He said, moo. Now, moo is a word we don't have in the Christian tradition, but I wish we could use it more often. Moo kind of directly translates to unask the question. <laughs> because unask the question because the answer to that question is never going to get us anywhere. The answer to that question can never take us further. Unask the question. Figure out a different way to ask that question. I think in issues of the church and Christian community, it needs to be a whole lot more of like, moo. Unask that question. Figure out a different way to interact with that question. Figure out a different way to phrase that. Or overall, like, let's ask bigger questions. What are the bigger questions of faith that we need to be wrestling with, that we need to be dealing with? And what are the little ones that are going to stop us from getting in the way? And there's space. I don't mean to like completely belittle all the, the details are important and all of that minutiae actually does have a place, but there are places for that. I would say the best space to deal with that stuff would be in a small group. It would be wrestling through it with other people that can actually talk back at you rather than having an internal dialogue and submitting a community card. It's, it's you can actually have a fresh conversation with the people that are right next door to you. I think that might be the way uh, forward. Because honestly, if we get 
totally wrapped up in this stuff, we're going to have something that's called decision fatigue. And I think that's a lot of what people leave Christianity because of, because they're just having to make all of these little choices and deal with all this little stuff. Decision fatigue is a really real thing. It's that feeling at the end of the day where you've had a full work day or a full workload and you've made loads of decisions. Your brain is actually spending energy and calories on each decision that you make. It's actually one of the major things that the brain does. So at the end of the day, you feel like if I have to answer the question of where I want to go to dinner or what you'd like to eat or anything like that, I'm going to snap, right? That, that's the feeling at the end of the day because you've made so many little choices that it leaves no space for any big choices. This is why like Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs wear the same thing every day. Basically, that takes out one more decision so they have more room and less decision fatigue to handle the big things in life. And I think that's what God does too. And we're going to do a story in scripture um, that I think exhibits that to, to the, the highest. Um, and it's the story of Ruth. If you guys have ever heard this story before, it's a story in the Old Testament. Um, it's a story, it's a very rare story. It's a story of a female protagonist. Um, and pay attention to what happens here. You're not going to see a lot of God speaking in this story. You're not going to see a lot of divine intervention where he just goes, this is going to be this or this is going to be that. What we see is a story of people working through things. And even more than that, the grand theme of the story of Ruth is this awesome Hebrew word called chesed. Chesed. And chesed basically means a faithful, undying love. And it's a story of not only God's faithful, undying love for us, but it actually trickles out, as good love does, into the people. And it shows Ruth's undying love for the people in her life and her loyalty to that. And we're going to see Ruth cut through some of the like details, some of the cultural details, some of the barriers, some of the boundaries, all that stuff to go, no, I'm going to follow Hesed. I'm going to follow God's faithful love for me. So this is how the story of Ruth goes. We have that handy-dandy, um, there we go. Look at this infographic. Um, basically, this is just going to help me get through the story. Um, so the story of Ruth. Uh, Basically, uh, Naomi and her husband, there's a famine going on in Bethlehem and in the land that they're from. So they go and they go decide there's food in uh, Moab. So we're going to go to Moab and we're going to go and we're going to hang out there. Uh, and in the process, their two sons get married and they get married to two people and their names are Ruth and Orpah. Now, Orpah, if you try and type that out while writing a sermon, is going to autocorrect Oprah every single time to the point that I found this picture when I Googled Orpah. I don't know if you can see that, but there's Orpah and there's Oprah. And then there's a nice computer-generated Boaz. Anyway, so as we're, uh, they get married uh, to these two uh, women, and uh, they, start, they, they don't even get the chance to start a family before Naomi's husband, who's the patriarch mom, her husband dies. And then, just 10 years later, uh, Orpah and Ruth's husbands both pass away as well. And so you have this story of three widows. And in the ancient context, widows were some of the most vulnerable people in society. Because basically what would happen is inheritance in any kind of a way. So if her husband died, her inheritance wouldn't be left to her. It would actually be left to her sons. And if you didn't have any sons, the inheritance thing becomes very tricky between family and all this kind of stuff. So if you were a widow and you died, you did not have sons to take over that family line and that inheritance and to take care of you. You were in an extremely vulnerable position. When Jesus says to take care of specific groups, he says orphans, widows, the poor, and the sick. Widows are just as important in that list because at this time they are that vulnerable. And now you have a group of three of them that are making up this family. And Naomi decides something's got to change, something's got to be done, we'll die here. So she figures out that in her homeland there's food again. And the, the scripture says that God had blessed that, that land and so she could return. So she decides, I'm going to return. 
uh, and her two daughter-in-laws follow her. And as they're getting closer, Naomi must have been having this inner dialogue of like, how are they ever going to survive in this land because they're Moabites? Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but basically a Moabite is about the most hated thing you could be to an Israelite at that point. And what's super ironic is their family line is almost identical between one little split. So it's the people that look like them, talk like them, exactly like them. We hate those people. So that's the deal that you're dealing with with the Moabites. Is this whole separation really, really early on in the very first book of the Bible between Abraham and Lot. And Lot begins to like, form the Moabites and Abraham is the Israelites. But these tribes have never come back together. And in fact, they hate each other. They have this long history of attacking each other. Uh, and the Moabites actually have an even longer history of slaughtering the Israelites. It's bad. It's really bad. So the Israelites have good reason to be wary of these people, uh, and so much so that like, you were not allowed to enter the temple. You were not allowed to enter any sort of religious festival if you were a Moabite. You were not allowed to even set foot near any of this. And uh, most of the time, Israelite men were forbidden to marry Moabite women. And there were rare occasions where this would happen, but for the most part, this was a completely forbidden practice, and it would mark the man as well. And so she begins to think, if I bring Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, into this new land, they're going to have a really, really rough life. Like, so rough that I, I don't want to put them through that. So she turns to both of her daughter-in-laws, and she says, both of you need to go back to your land. Go back to your families. Go back to your home. Uh, and it, there's this scene where they both kind of protest, and they're, they're kind of doing that, like, well, I mean, if, if you mean it. And, and Orpah takes it seriously, and she goes, okay, thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to my family. But then there's this really interesting moment where Ruth stands by Naomi, and she basically says, no, I'm not going back. You're my family now. My loyalty is with you, and that means that I'm going to take on anything to get there. And the verse goes like this. Uh, do you have that verse, David? The, uh, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to the people and with her gods. Go back with her. And she's talking about Orpah, and she's talking to Ruth. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if even death separates you and me. Those are some pretty harsh words. To which Naomi replies, okay. So Ruth comes with Naomi into this land. And, and be really, really intentional and look at this. Look how God is going to solve this division between Lot and Abraham, the Moabites and the Israelites. This tribe has been separated for so long. Who's he using? He's using a female protagonist, a woman, who at that time would not even be listed in a census. And he's using her as an outsider, as a Moabite, to come into this story. And what does she do right off the bat? There is a huge list of things that you needed to do to convert into the Jewish culture and the Judaism at that point. What Ruth does is just basically say, like, nope, I'm converting. That's happening right now. It's done, which breaks all the rules. You're not supposed to be able to do that. And even more, as a woman at that time, you were definitely, you had no authority to speak like that. I think this is where Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, gets it because basically when he comes, he'd never seen the actual Jesus. And the people that did see the actual Jesus, they were called the apostles, the witnesses of Christ. And Paul basically comes back and he's like, what do you guys call yourselves? The people who like seen Jesus. And they're like, we're the, we're the apostles. And he goes, I'm one of them. And they go, what? So he, he models this behavior too. Where he says, I am now a part of this tradition, whether you like it or not. 
And that's what Ruth is doing. She's stepping out of her family tradition, of her religious tradition, and she's taking on something incredibly new, incredibly brave, incredibly scary. Because she recognizes that with this shift, I'm going to have to live life as a widow in a foreign land, as a Moabite, as a marked person, and I'm probably going to live a very hard life. But I'm willing to step into that because Hesed, because I'm loyal to what you're doing and to my family, and I trust you. This is a huge deal. And I don't want to belittle this, but it does bear mentioning that if you step through the doors of a church, especially a little situation like this, you know how much bravery it takes to step into a new community. To know, like, am I dressed right? Do I have, like, the right stuff? Are they going to judge me? Is everything going to be okay? The amount of bravery it takes to step in and say, I will be a part of this community is immense. And Ruth is doing this tenfold. She's risking her entire life for this. So Ruth goes with Naomi, and, and they begin to work gleaning the fields, which basically meant uh, it was an ancient Hebrew practice uh, that made sure people were fed. So the workers could work, and they could take the majority of the grain in the field, but they would have to leave behind a certain percentage so that other people who didn't have the same opportunities, or maybe they were sick, or maybe they were late, whatever it was, they could come and they could glean from the field, which basically meant whatever was left over, that would sustain them, and they would be, they would be okay. This is just an ancient way of taking care of people and making sure everyone had something to eat at the end of the day. So they're essentially doing that, uh, but it was dangerous, especially if you were a woman. Because you have workers that are on the field who are all men, and this is not the type of space where it's completely safe. So uh, Ruth decides to do this for Naomi, and she's gleaning in the field, and all of a sudden, uh, she meets this man. And this man kind of goes up to the workers and he says, who is this woman? Because this is a bold move. Like, for a woman to be in the field gleaning was like, that's, hey, she's got some guts. Who is this person? And they reply, oh, that's Ruth. That's, that's uh, uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law, and, and she's come. She's a Moabite, and she's come uh, to stay loyal to Naomi. And Boaz happens to be related to Naomi, but we don't figure that out until a little bit later in the story. But he hears this story, and he goes, wow, what great faith. And he walks up to Ruth, and he goes, hey, I can't believe what you're doing here. This is incredible. Hey, good for you for being so intensely loyal. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you home with a bunch of grain. The bunch of grain basically translated into, like, maybe over 200 pounds of grain. Like, she comes home loaded with grain. And Naomi goes, what happened today? And she goes, well, I met this guy named Boaz, and Boaz just said, good on you for being faithful to Naomi. And Naomi goes, oh my gosh, Boaz. <laughs> she goes, that's our family. It's called a kinsman reuniter. A kinsman reuniter. Basically what that means is they were, it was the closest enough relative to them that if he married either Naomi or Ruth, it would redeem the whole clan. And basically the whole reason that they're widows and can't get the inheritance, the inheritance would come back through into the family and their family would be redeemed. And so Naomi gets the classic mother-in-law sort of like twitch and just goes, okay, you're going to go back to that field tomorrow. So she goes back to that field tomorrow. There's a whole scene where she kind of like uncovers them. We're not sure what's happening there. I'm going to skip past that part. It's interesting. Anyway, so they go to the field, meets him again. And then the part of the night, she's, she's there at night with Boaz. She wakes him up. He's sleeping. She's by her feet. And he sa she says, would you please extend your garment over me and redeem my family, which is a, a euphemism for marriage. Would you please marry me and redeem my family? And Boaz says, what an amazing gift. And he literally says, you didn't pick any of the younger men in town. You came to me. <laughs> and then he says, I want to do this. I really do. But I know that there's a closer relative to you. 
and I'm going to go ask him, and if he says no, I will totally be your kinsman redeemer. And so he goes off, and he asks this person, and the person is excited, because here's the deal. If you were able to marry in, you would receive that inheritance. So this is essentially like a big financial boost. Like, oh, I'm going to get land out of this. I'm going to get money out of this. And he goes, this is like a lottery ticket that's just been planted in my lap. And think about that. The character of Boaz, who's now the new kind of loyal character in this, is not just going, okay, I'm going to do this. He's, he's, he has the respect and the dignity to actually say, I, I actually know of someone who deserves this more than I do in terms of cultural stuff, so I'm going to go ask him first. So he goes and asks him, and the guy's like, yes, score. But then Boaz just kind of slips in, oh, by the way, she's a widow and a Moabite. And the guy instantly says, like, nope, that could affect my whole family. I'm not going to have it. You go ahead and do it. <laughs> so Boaz starts down the path of marrying Ruth. And at the end, they get married together. He redeems the whole family. They have a son. That son's name is Obed, father of Jesse, who is father of David, King David. Now, I want to point out, that's a long journey to get back to this, right? We had to hear the whole story. But I want to point out is that if you look at the Davidic line, the genealogies, these are this long list of names in the Bible, not only do we get to see that David has Moabite blood within him, which there's a, a funky little passage in Deuteronomy 23.3 that looks like this. David, we have that passage? Um, no Ammonite or Moabite of any... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Is that your descendants may enter the assembly? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th, Generation. Now, David would have been the third generation from Ruth, so that would make him ineligible to even set foot in any sort of religious thing. And yet, this is the guy that's originally charged, and God says, you're going to build this temple. So all of a sudden, we have a break in culture. We have a break in the cultural norms. We have a break in everything. And what Ruth is doing and what, what she's following this has said is saying, I'm not going to pay attention to all these cultural laws, all these practices. What I'm going to do is I'm going to follow the love of God, and I'm going to push it to the point that something new happens. And God is in that all the way through, even if he's not speaking. So what's even more interesting in our faith is if you follow that Davidic line, especially the, the genealogy in Matthew, you have a genealogy that reads all the way down from David, reads all the way down from the beginning, actually, all the way through to David and then down to Jesus. So who do we have as a Savior? A Savior that came out of a family line that has all of these outsiders that are pushing the limits and pushing through. There are a couple of women's names in that genealogy, which is very rare because, again, women would not have been counted, but Matthew decides to include them, and it runs down like this. There's, sorry, I had to write these down because I couldn't memorize them. There's Tamar. She's in Genesis 38. Tamar is listed as a, uh, a, a worker of the night. I'm going to let you figure out what that means, but that's Tamar, right? Uh, Rahab, she's in Joshua 2. She's also a worker of the night, and she's a Gentile, and she's in that genealogy. And then we have Ruth, and we know the story there, Moabite, widow. And then we have Bathsheba, and that's very, very important because that was David's little slip-up on the rooftop where he slept with someone else's wife and then sent his husband out to die. This is the family line of Jesus. And that's really important and really intentional, guys, because what we see is that the person that's going to come and bring it all together, this Christ who's going to die and, and make all things new, comes from what the religious people of the day and the culture of the day would have deemed as completely inappropriate and completely wrong. 
and yet we have a savior that comes from this stock and comes completely vulnerable into the world to be cared for by us. What I love about the genealogy, what I love about Ruth, is that she does not mess around with any of the messiness and she just says, no, I'm gonna follow God against all sorts of odds and craziness. That's the kind of said. that's the kind of love that's gonna move the church forward and grow. If we can begin to push past all the little stuff and stuff that bogs us down, if we can just start focusing on what really matters the most, that has said this unfailing love, this unchallenged love. And there's a reason that you're gonna find enormous church growth in some churches and in some reasons. And a lot of the reason is we're clinging to stuff. We're scared to lose it. We're scared to let go. And fear is always going to build a bigger crowd. It's always going to have a bigger crowd because people are going to be afraid. They're going to be scared. They don't want to huddle together. But fear never builds anything. Love is slow, but love builds stuff. Love walks across cultural lines. Love goes further. God does that. That's the story of Ruth. That's the story of God. That's the story of Jesus. And so in our community, as we push forward into the fall, we're two years into this, but I have no doubt in my mind that this is going to grow. And with that, there's going to be new problems. There's going to be new tensions. There's going to be new all of this. But we must never, ever forget that when we gather in the space, we're sitting at the table. That there's room for conversation. There's room for debate. There's room for love. Because love builds stuff. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you uh, for the story of Ruth, for the story of uh, that redemption, how you use a complete outsider to pull together the whole story. I pray that we'd be mindful of that as we look uh, at what's happening in the church today, that, that God, you use tons of stuff that we would never expect, that you're at work in places we would never imagine keep us open to that possibility and that we understand that love is constantly growing and moving forward and pushing 